Thank you, Pastor, and thank you, Coach Smith, for giving me the opportunity to uh, be here this morning. I see some familiar faces, and so I feel a, bit, a little bit at home um, this morning. Um, this morning, uh, I was called to really address men and manhood, and I want you to know that at the very beginning, there's a difference between um, a Sunday afternoon session where you're breaking down your opponent for the coming week and a Friday night pep talk right before you go into the ball game. The Friday night pep talk is really just to, to get everybody excited and enthused after you've put in a week of preparation to go into the ball game. And so the Friday night pep talk is really, it's good, but it doesn't, it doesn't accomplish a lot. What really accomplishes something is the war room, the, the, the Sunday night session where you're breaking down film and creating a plan so that you can implement it for throughout the week so that you actually can do something on Friday night. And, and I decided this morning what we want to have is more like a Sunday night film session, kind of be in a war room, breaking things down so that we don't just get merely excited about being men and doing man kind of things, but we actually get trained and equipped to be men. So, so my goal, my passion for the time that we have this morning is to equip you to be men, to be real men. And if you've got a handout, you'll actually see at the very top that the title of the message is Act Like Men. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Let's read it together and we'll ask blessing. The Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth, therefore the Holy Spirit says to us, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we approach your throne in this moment, and we do not want to waste this moment. Father, we want to redeem this moment. We want to buy it back for your glory. We want to buy it back for our joy and good, and we want to buy it back for the salvation of the lost. But specifically, Lord, what we want to ask you is that you would help us to understand what real manhood is. We want to ask you to give us an open heart and an open mind and open hands to receive your word so that we can be sharpened and shaped and blessed and equipped for real manhood. Lord, what we want to pray is that ultimately that families inside First Baptist Piedmont will be better, that this entire community will be better and be drawn to the ultimate man, Jesus, your son, our Savior. That's what we pray, Lord. We, we pray no small prayer. We ask that you will flood our emptiness with your fullness and do a mighty work in our hearts today. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. So, I'm passionate about manhood. I'll give you a thousand reasons and examples why. One, I will tell you that, that one of our athletes at one of our area schools, uh, 2020 hit, COVID's hit, a uh, young man, you know, ends up going home and having to do school by computer and ends up flunking a couple of classes because, because his dad, his dad decides to leave his wife 
and, and his children and goes off and lives somewhere else with somebody else. And, and this guy who's in an FCA huddle ends up flunking a couple classes, then therefore disqualifies himself for the football team and the basketball team and, and decides, you know, his dad leaves him. He's no longer part of the, the family called his team and in July makes an attempt on his life. And now we're picking up the pieces from that. We host a golf tournament a few weeks ago, and, and one of the young men who's in, in our huddle, who I don't believe has come to faith in Christ, but is very respectful in our huddle, he, he's playing in this with his dad, and, 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 and apparently this 18-year-old young man doesn't get up to the tee box in time enough, and here we are, we got our FCA 10, our Bible spread out, and he doesn't, the little guy doesn't get to the tee box in time, and the dad just yells out God's name in vain really loudly and just yells at him to hit the hit the golf ball. And I think to myself, we spend two hours a week with this kid, but this young man spends his entire life with his dad. I mean, we are in, we are in a crisis for manhood. And so if you're taking notes, and I would really like you to, this very first thing is the call to manhood. You see, we're all faced with critical moments in our lives that really define the trajectory of our lives for the rest of our lives. It started with Adam. Think about it, we often can recite the story of Adam and Eve falling uh, at the hands of the serpent, but if you read Genesis chapter 3 closely, that as the interchange is, is happening between Eve and the serpent, Moses the writer, the Holy Spirit the author, actually tells us that the man was right there with Eve when he fell. He's just standing there, quiet, not standing in. Adam had a responsibility and a role to shepherd and love and protect his wife, and he stood back and didn't, didn't fulfill it. And that set all of humanity and all of men on a trajectory that unless we are redeemed by God the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, we'll fall the same way that, that Adam did. If you think about Abel, Abel met a moment where he was to offer God uh, some sense of worship. And the scripture tells us that Abel offered up the first fruits of what he had. He offered up his best, his highest, his, his, the, the thing that he was most proud of. He offers it up to, to, to worship unto this God who is worthy. And Cain, his brother, it says, just offered God something. He offered him something what he had. And God accepted what Abel had offered, but rejected what Cain had offered. And Cain, in the midst of his jealousy and envy of his brother, had a moment to either repent of his sin of not offering God his best, or he could go the way of violence. And we know the way that Cain chose. But this is the reality, is that all men at all times face moments where it, it defines the trajectory and the quality of their lives. And Abel chose this, and Cain chose that. Think about David, and I think we could probably all resonate with David because David is this young man, this teenager, this 16-year-old guy who's not even in Saul's army but comes up to the camp and sees this giant on the other side taunting not only the army of the Israelites but God himself. And David looks around at all these fearful soldiers and he essentially says, how dare they defy the army of the living God. And so David boldly approaches Goliath. 
And Goliath says, I'm going to cut off your head and we're going to destroy you and we're going to take over your people. And David looks at this giant and he's this young teenage boy and he stares at Goliath in the eyes and he says, how dare you defy the Lord of hosts? And then he declares what he's going to do and he proclaims it. And for the glory of God, he defeats not only Goliath, but the entire Philistines. Now, this is the thing. We so trivialize that story. But I want to tell you, he was a man in a boy's body who was willing to stand up for the glory of God. Now, what's beautiful, and it's sad at the same time, it's some years later, that David is also not where he's supposed to be as a man. In the springtime, when kings go out to war, he sends Joab, and he stays at home, and he looks at a beautiful woman who happens to be the wife of one of his soldiers, and he says, I want her. And so he takes her, and he sins. And in that moment, he had a decision to be a real man or a fake man, and he chose to be a fake man, and he, and he believed the lie that Satan was, was selling him in the moment. And so he falls, and he sets everything in his family on a bad trajectory. It's, 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 it's a wonder what one decision as a man that you can make can impact so many people in your family and in your community and even in your nation. But what's also beautiful, even though that's sad and ugly, there was another man who knocked on David's door. And because David's heart, at, the, at his heart of hearts, really beat for the glory of God, Namath, don't have time to tell the story, but he told a story and ultimately looked at, at David right in the eyes and he says, David, you're the man. You're guilty. You did it. And David goes behind closed doors and he gets on his face and he repents of his sin and he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew within me a steadfast spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and give me a willing spirit. And God restored him and gave him great grace and mercy. And David was able to continue to lead while a cloud was still over him in his life because he was a sinner like us. But I, I give you that story about David because David was valiant, he was sinful, he was repentant. And that's just the nature of what life in a broken world with us being sinners is. But the thing about it is, at our core, we've got to realize the call for us to be real men. So there's a call on our lives. There is a call for us to rise up above the, the mundane nature of what, of what um, the world defines as real manhood. Let me just tell you, they're, they're the killer bees. I'm going to tell you what the killer bees are. The, the killer bees are, this is what people say what real manhood is. The ball field, the billfold, and the bedroom. If you've got it all going on on those three levels, then you're a real man. If you make a lot of money, if you do great in sports, and if you're good with the ladies, then you're a real man. That's what the world says. And the, and the scripture tells us something totally different as to what real manhood is supposed to be. Now, if you look down at your notes, I want to show you what the enemies to manhood are. You don't know what your enemy is, and you don't know what your enemy's at. How are you really going to effectively fight against the enemy? If you don't know what your opposition is good at, then how are you going to be effective? And so there are really three enemies to manhood. Ephesians 2 captures each of them quite well. Paul tells the church at Ephesus, he says, 
You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, the spirit who now dwells in the sons of disobedience. He says, you walked according to the lusts of your flesh. And so right there in that moment, as he's telling these people who now love God, he says, you didn't used to love God. And this was what your God was, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Those were your three enemies. It was like a three-headed monster. And so the world, not not creeks and streams and mountains and, and all of that, but the world system that is opposed to God and his glory. That world system that is after the hearts and the souls of all people, who is governed by Satan himself, the devil, who is the prince of the power of the air. And that's one thing that we lose sight of, brothers and sisters. We lose sight that we are in a spiritual war. We are in a spiritual war. We, we can't see it with our eyes, but it is as real as we are right here in this building today. There are principalities and powers. There are angels that are at war with one another for our hearts and for our souls. And so what happens is, is that because our flesh, that unredeemed nature of our humanness. If you, if you want to, some of you maybe young guys in the room might, what is the flesh? This is what the flesh is. It's our sinful nature. It's what it is, our sinful nature. And this is the thing is, uh, as I was praying on the way up here this morning, I realized, you know, I was confessing my sin. I, I said, Lord, I, I am a sinner. I said, praise God, I, I have been delivered from the, the, the power of sin and the pollution of sin, ultimately the penalty of sin through your son Jesus. I, I have, but I still have that leftover fallenness about me that I can fall at any moment. I can speak harshly to my brother or I can think thoughts that are that are selfish and greedy. That that's my flesh. That that leftover remnant of sin that still dwells in me and that is at war with 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 what really God has recreated me to be. And, and it's my enemy and I can't feed it. I can't I can't just continue to say here you go, here you go and expect that I'm going to be a real man. Because the more I buy into the lie that, that sports is everything, that money is everything, that being with girls is everything, the more I'm falling right into the serpent's hand and saying, you know, this is where real manhood is. And so I'm not going to be a man. I'm going to be a boy in a man's body. And, and this is really the question. The question is, is do we want to be men or do we want to be boys in men's bodies? And so... The enemies of manhood are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we've got to recognize it if we're going to fight against it. And really most important, you to write down the model of manhood. The model of manhood. Because Jesus Christ is the greatest man who ever lived. He is the model of manhood. And we need to look no further than our Savior to see really what manhood is all about. If you think about Jesus being a model of manhood, what we find is that Jesus, first of all, was full of love. Full of love. And I like to say this everywhere I go, because if you read the New Testament in particular, and you want to ask the question, what is love? Love is the passionate pursuit of the highest good of other people. That's what love is. It is the passionate pursuit of the highest good of other people. And does it come with feelings? Yes, it comes with feelings. 
But love is not primarily a feeling. Love is an action. It's a commitment to pursue other people's highest good. And Jesus Christ, the ultimate man, leaves the glories of heaven, leaves the perfection of heaven, leaves the worship of angels that are gathering around his throne constantly and daily singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he takes on human flesh and lives among sinners just like us. And he loves perfectly. He lives perfectly. He honors his parents. He recognizes the Sabbath. He, he never lies. He never cheats. He never commits sexual immorality. He doesn't covet. He never envies. But he walks and lives lovingly and righteously every day of his life. And then what does he get for it? He gets the envy and hatred and jealousy and violence of sinful men who look at him and say, we've got to get rid of him. And as he climbs up to Golgotha, who's lived this perfect, manly, masculine life, and they nail his hands to that cross and his feet to that cross, and they thrust him up naked before everyone else, full of shame and, and full of embarrassment and full of pain. And they cry out, if you're really the son of God, come down from that cross. And listen to me, church, because he was the son of God, he would not come down off of that cross because he was a real man who lived a life of love all the way to the end. And he sets the model for us. He goes before us and shows us this is what real men do. They lovingly pursue, passionately pursue the highest good of others. And he was pursuing our good that day on Golgotha at the cross. And he was also providing us an example. Now they buried him. And people wiped their hands of him. But, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, he defeats death and sin and Satan and hell and darkness and self and rises from the dead. And this is the beautiful thing, that as we look at this model of manhood and we trust in what he has done for us, that we bow before him and trust in Jesus Christ, then he fills us with his spirit and we can walk in the footsteps of Jesus in real manhood because we've got everything that we need to be able to do so. So the model of manhood is Jesus. Please don't try to be a man apart from the ultimate man. Don't try to be a man apart from the one who not only set the example but gives you the power to do it because any effort at being a real man apart from Jesus is actually rivaling the God who loves you and sustains you. You're actually trying to be something that you cannot be and whatever you're being is fake. It's artificial without the power of God in you. So the is Jesus. I want us to look of manhood. The marks of manhood. This is where it gets a little practical and hopefully helpful to you. Now, these four marks are, are marks that you can read about in multiple books because when you read through Genesis to Revelation, what you find is that there are like some 
some, some key aspects to manhood that all men, no matter what their station in life is, no matter where they live, no matter whether they're single or married, whether they're a dad or a granddad or not, it doesn't matter. There are four marks that really all men need to display. And the first one is this, reject passivity. P-A-S-S-I-V-I-T-Y, passivity. It means to be passive. Reject that. And the reason that's the first mark of manhood is because that's how the first man fell, Adam. He was passive in the garden when Eve was right there. Adam should have stepped in. Adam should have said something. Adam should have, should have got in between the serpent and his wife, but he stands back passive. And this is the thing, is that what we are tempted to do as men is to to be aggressive about things that don't matter and to be passive about things that do matter. We're aggressive about the killer bees and we're passive about God and, and the word of God and we're passive about things that are really important. And so somehow we, Adam, well we know how through, through sinful DNA that's been passed down from generation to generation and that is this, is that we are passive by nature about important things. And we've got to reject that. We have to reject that with every fiber of our being and the power of the Holy Spirit if we're going to be real men, reject passivity. The second is accept responsibility. Accept responsibility. Be accountable. Be accountable for your life. Be accountable for your decisions. Be accountable for your example. For family. You know, I just finished a coach's Bible study on Thursday with a bunch of coaches from this area. And we studied the book of Jonah. Big-hearted coach. It was a study through the four chapters of Jonah. And what we found out about Jonah is that Jonah didn't want to take on the responsibility of being a representative of God. As a matter of fact, he ran from that responsibility. But this, was, this is what we found out, is that Jonah didn't want to take on the responsibility of being an ambassador for God because his heart didn't bleed and beat for the salvation of people who needed to know God. Jo Jonah didn't accept his responsibility to go preach to Nineveh because he hated the people of Nineveh because he didn't want to see them come to salvation and have the same kind of joy that, that he himself had. And so he denied the very essence of what it meant to be a man because he did not have a heart that beat in cadence with God's glory and God's passion for the salvation of the world. And so as men, we have to take on this real responsibility to stand up, to speak out, and to love. Third, we, we need to lead courageously. So we reject passivity, we accept responsibility for our lives, and we lead courageously. We go before and we show the way to the younger people. We go before and we show the way for say, this is where we need to go. We're going to run to the cross first, and we're going to worship the Savior who bled for us. Live for the God who loves us. We're going we're gonna to wave the banner that says that God is glorious and he's worthy of our time and our talents and our treasure. That's what we're going to do because that's why God has made us. We're going to lead out courageously. We're not going to sit back passively. And fourth, we're going to invest eternally. Invest eternally. You know, to invest is to put good use. To put something to a, to a potential profit. And if I were to 
line all the men up this morning and spend all afternoon. We sit just one-on-one, and then I ask you about your investments. What all are you investing in? Do you have a 401k? Do you have a personal IRA? How about you do, what, what, what's in your savings account down at the bank right here? Could you tell me what, what are you doing with the stock market? Kind of, could, could you tell me? And some of you would say, well, I've got a diversified plan. I'm investing a little bit in property. I'm, a, I'm investing a little bit, yes, in 401k. And I'm not putting it all in one, but I'm, I'm trying to be smart about my investments because I realize what I'm investing right now is, is going to make a difference for what it's going to be like when I'm 60, 70, 80, and maybe even 90 years old. And I realize how important it is to invest in my future. Well, I want to ask you, men, what kind of investments are you making in eternity? Because if I, were to, if I were to string a rope from that wall to that wall, and, and let's dig a hole in that wall over there and let the rope go through that wall, and that rope extends all the way up to center and up to Fort Payne and on into Chattanooga and up the sea, eastern seaboard to New York City and all the way up into Canada and all the way across the top of the North Pole and starts going back down on the other side of the globe, I will tell you right now that on the rope, your life, your life right now is right here. And from right here all the way up north to the North Pole is all of eternity. Now, which is the better investment? If you're going to be a real man, you need to think about investing in eternity. And those things have eternal implications. All right, now let's look at the roles of manhood. Now this is, this is if, you think about, if you think about, okay, well, how do I flesh manhood out? This, this actually shows you here the roles of manhood. And I can't remember if on your outline you already probably have them for you. Let's see. Yes, you do. So good. So you're not going to have to write this down, but first... If you want to be a real man, you have to be a worshiper, worshiper of God. And I want to read Romans 1 and 2 to you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, when we think of our, our lives as men, oftentimes you go to a conference, you uh, maybe even go to a, a church gathering somewhere where you're meeting other men, and within the first few minutes, or maybe the first minute, the question that is first asked, so Michael, if you and I meet one another, and we're just general men meeting one another, the, one of the first questions that I ask is, well, what do you do? Right, I'm a minister, I'm a minister. And you're going to ask, well, well, what do you do? And I, I'll say, oh, I'm a banker, or you know, I'm a teacher, or something like that. And then we, we take down the road of, of what we do as the topic of our conversation. And so you're going to ask me about my banking, or you're going to ask me about my teaching, or whatever, and I'm just going to go down that road. But one of the things that we've got to do as men is back up. And before we, before we really ask the question, what do you do? If we could ask the question, who are you? Who are you? And if I could just naturally, because it flows from the essence of where, where my heart beats, if I could say, well, first and foremost, I'm a worshiper of the living God. 
I love him, and I only love him because he first loved me. And I try to live for him, and I try to, I try to magnify his worth with my life, with every fiber of my being. And, and so when I go to work as a banker or a teacher or a coach, it's as a worshiper. And when I go home and try to minister to my wife and to my kids, it's as a worshiper of God because that is essence who I am God took out my heart of stone and he put in a heart of flesh. He took out that callous heart and he put in that soft heart and now my heart beats for God. I'm a worshiper. Second, a worker. You know, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That was before the fall. And we have a, oftentimes we have this thinking that somehow work is a product of the fall and the curse. In reality, it was a part of life in a perfect world where men work. They get up, they get prepared, and they work. And they work, and they get tired, and they sweat, but they love it, and God powers them for it, and they set the example for their community and for their nation that they are workers. Work is everything that we do in order to provide for our physical and social needs, and we need more work. You're a husband, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that, that's what Scripture says four times. It's, that, that passage is repeated four times in the Scriptures because it's so important for a man to know his role leave to cleave and to weave and to provide and shepherd and protect for his wife a father and a grandfather i want you to look down see if i put this put this uh, in here two passages right here ephesians 6:4 says fathers do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And Deuteronomy 6, and following one and following Moses via the Lord, just directly revealing this to Moses, says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to tell you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you. So look at that definition. A dad is a father who sacrificially loves, intentionally trains, faithfully protects, rightly rewards, and sufficiently provides for his children as an expression of the father's love for his children. And for some of you men who are maybe grandfather age or who are about to enter into that, in that arena, I want to issue this challenge to you. Do you want to care for, provide for, bless, and even spoil your grandkids? Great. Great. But if you don't teach them the word of God, if you don't offer to them the gospel of God, if you don't sit them down in your lap or right beside at Thanksgiving and Christmases and tell them about the love of God in Jesus Christ, I want to tell you all this providing for and spoiling and blessing will just blow up in smoke. It'll, it'll, it'll be that wood, hay, and stubble if you're not giving your grandchildren the most important thing there is to give them, which is God himself. So please receive that if you're a grandfather in this room or to be one. Your son, 
your son. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, I just think about, I think about Jesus himself who, who was sinless, comes to earth and has to live under the roof and under the authority of sinful parents. And he does it without sinning and without dishonoring them. How much more should we as sinners care for, honor, and bless our parents who love us? I'm 45 years old. I still have the call to honor my parents. Okay? And so let's honor those who are, um, who are our parents. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and I'm going to get to it in, at, in a moment, but Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the, count, the countenance of his friend. Um, so I want to say this so I don't forget it, and I want you to listen to me. Manhood is not an individual sport. Uh, my, my brother coaches college golf, and each guy goes out and plays his, his own ball all the way through on his own hole. It's kind of an individual sport, all right? Um, some of you uh, are involved in other, like, running or bicycling, all individual sports, and they're really good. There's a big difference between an individual sport and a sport where 11 guys have to line up together and every one of them has to do their job for there to be success, or five guys, or five girls. That's a big difference. And I want you to know this, that if you want to be the best man that you possibly can be, then it cannot be in a vacuum between you and God. It's got to be with other men who are sharpening one another, blessing one another, encouraging one another, forgiving one another, helping one another, being accountable to one another. That's the way in which manhood is really going to be sharpened and, and gotten to the point where it's the very best that it can be. So a friend, you got to have friends. you got to be a friend. And then an ambassador, we're ambassadors for Christ, and God makes his appeal through us. If we're going to be real men, then we're, we're, we're not in a vacuum. We, we actually go out and we represent Jesus and we tell people about the ultimate man, Jesus. And then a leader. And I put this in especially for you who are kind of thinking to yourself, um, you know, I, I can't wait so that I can actually be a man. I can't wait so that I can actually, you know, uh, fulfill what real men, manhood, m- men do. And I'm just going to tell you, I don't care whether you're 14 or 18, or 22, I can tell you right now, you can be a man right now. You can lead the way for men right now. Paul tells Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, and faith, and purity. Because you see, a, a leader passionately influences others for the glory of God, and it doesn't matter how old you are to do that. There are a lot of, there are a lot of males who are 60 years old, year old, 80 years old, and they've yet to arrive to real manhood. And I've got some guys in our ministry and within the Fellowship of Christian Athletes who are 15, and they're more of a man than those 60-year-olds are. I'm going to give you the equipment for manhood now. Coming down the home stretch, so thank you for your attentiveness. The equipment for manhood. Uh, this, is a, this is an entire message and training session in and of itself, so we won't be able to, to delve just super deep into it. But, um, but if you're going to walk into the battle for manhood, you've got to be equipped. I mean, you've you, you got to have your armor on. 
If you don't have your armor on, you're going to get killed. And a lot of times in manhood, especially in the spiritual war, you can be getting killed every day and nobody knows it. You can be falling prey to the enemy every day and nobody knows it. And you turn around and you're addicted and you're enslaved and you're selfish and you're greedy. And, and, but man, you, your hair looks good, you dress really nice, you're still making a lot of money, and you're getting killed every day. So you got to put on the armor. And the first piece of the armor that you need to put on is the helmet of salvation. I know this, when I played football, guys always were trying to get lighter. My wide receiver wouldn't wear knee pads. A lot of our defensive guys wouldn't wear their hip pads. Not their, they wouldn't wear their butt pads. They would, they, they'd get lighter and lighter and lighter. But I never had a teammate who wanted to go into battle without their helmet. What is salvation? Salvation is deliverance from the pollution of the power of sin, penalty of sin. Like you, you, you get plucked out of all of that by God himself and you get delivered over into the power Christ's resurrection, the purity of Christ's righteousness, and the promise of eternal life with Christ forever. And if you have that salvation, if you've crossed over from death into life, you've got that helmet. And if you put it on every day, you cannot be struck with a death blow. And so there's a sense in which, and I can tell you this, you preach the gospel to yourself every day. You tell yourself in a spirit of prayer, I've been delivered, I've been forgiven, I've been redeemed. There is, no, there is no hold on me that the world, the flesh, and the devil has because I've got salvation. You put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. The Roman soldier would put on his breastplate and it would cover over not only his chest and his neck, but all the way down to his waist. It would cover over the entirety of his back as well so that all of his major organs would be protected so that when he marched into battle, a death blow would be almost impossible to strike on that soldier because every major organ is protected. And I will tell you, when you've got Christ, you've got his righteousness. And when you have his righteousness, you cannot be struck down with an eternal death blow. So you're going to put that righteousness on. The shield of faith. The shield of faith. The, faith, the, the shield back in the Romans, so it would be four feet tall. It would be really heavy. It was made of wood on the inside, covered in leather, and then covered, covered with metal. And what the Roman soldier would do, check this out, he would take this massive, this massive shield that's covered in leather, uh, covered with metal and everything else, and he would dip it into the, the river or the lake or wherever they were going in the battle, and he would just soak all of that leather up and even seep into the wood so that when the fiery darts of the enemy would come over, he would have that shield just like this, and it would extinguish the fiery darts that were being shot over there so that they, he would not die. It would not get set on fire. And this is what, when Paul talks about having the shield of faith, he's saying, listen, if you believe in the promise of God, if you believe in the provision of God through Jesus Christ, if you believe in the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, if you trust in God, walking day after day after day, you will not get struck down. But you got to trust him. You got to believe him. You got to really trust in God himself. You're not walking in your own power. You have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I actually forgot my sword today. I had, a, I had someone send me I, I, uh, a replica of what the Roman, the Roman soldier had. It was, the sword was about two feet long, about two inches wide. And when we think of, a lot of times we think of 
is what this is why the Roman soldier only carried a small thin sword because he could easily use it at any moment. It's not this big which would take, require an entire body movement. And this is the thing, is that Paul is telling the Ephesians in Ephesians 6, the Holy Spirit's telling us that we need to take the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, and we need to be able to strike these blows whenever Satan comes whispering in, an air, in our ear, whenever our flesh is rising up and say, I want that, get that, do that. We need to be able to say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. For the word of God is living and active, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides between soul and spirit and joint and marrow. And it, it, it can discern the thoughts and the intentions of the very heart. And so I take that word of God and I wield it in a moment's notice so that I can fight off the attack of the enemy. And the word of God is powerful to do that. Let us take the word of God and wield it wherever we go. So we have the sword of the spirit, the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel. Man, if you're taking notes right now on the shoes of the gospel, I want to just offer a, 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 a quick definition for you for the gospel. Because when I go on school campuses, we've, we've been teaching the four um, so that, we, that our, our students and our coaches know what the gospel is, that any of them can just repeat it just like that. But I want to give you just a definition of the gospel that you can memorize, it, that you can hang all of your, your understanding of, of, uh, of God's work through Jesus. The gospel is the good news of salvation through faith in the person and work of Jesus. The gospel is the good news of salvation through faith in the person and work of Jesus. The gospel is the good news of salvation through faith in the person and work of Jesus. That's the good news, the gospel. And so we put on the gospel shoes every day and we've got this great news. No, it's not just news. It's not just good news. It's wonderful news that we say we know a Savior who saves sinners. We know a deliverer who redeems our lives from the pit. When we put that on as men, we become joyful and happy and exuberant and excited and passionate about being with people because we can walk into the war and we can offer them something of great substance. But apart from those gospel shoes, our life's oftentimes loses its, its, its meaning. So we want to have the equipment for manhood. All right, finally, finally, the power. The power for manhood. So you have three weapons in your artillery. I just want to just mention those briefly. And you may have them already listed in your notes. Let's see here. Yeah, you do. The Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the people of God. You have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who resides in you, who is your counselor, comforter, encourager, and teacher. You have the Word of God, which God has so graciously preserved for thousands of years. It's living and active, and it, it gets inside of us. And the Spirit of God and the Word of God work together for us to be real men. And then we have the people of God, which is the church. And, and we have the people of God who are working in unison with the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Not only is real manhood possible, but real men flourish and rise up and make a, a huge impact in their families, in their communities, in their churches, and in their world. If you would, look at the final page. I actually have some questions for reflection and discussion. Um, spend some time talking about areas of your life that you need to possess these four marks. 
I think it would be great if you're a dad and you got some sons for over, the lunch, over lunch today. Have, have that discussion. If you're here today and, and you don't necessarily have anybody, any plans with anybody this afternoon, number two, on a scale of one to ten, how are you doing in your God-given roles and carrying them out with passion and joy? Take, take, be willing to do an inventory of your heart and your life so that you can get an accurate understanding of where you stand in your manhood. Are there any sins that you need to repent of that are keeping you from fulfilling passionately your call and your roles as a man? Answer those honestly. And then given the seriousness of the war you're in, how can you better utilize the equipment, the power, the source for real manhood that God has given to you? Do you, do you need to get into an accountability relationship with another man? Do you, do you need to join forces with other men for a Bible study so that you can get the Word of God in you? Do you meet with, with some men once a week for prayer so that you can call upon the Holy Spirit to, do, to work mightily? Whatever it is that you need to do. But this is what I know. If you don't do anything after today's message, rest assured, rest assured, you are falling into the trap of the world, the devil, and the flesh, and you're following the first Adam who was in the garden rather than the second Adam who was on the cross. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will take your word and this call. Would you help every man in this room to follow after Christ, the model of manhood, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.